This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. If you, like me, adore nature and love staring at it, then I really can't recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. With a wide range of easy-to-use products all fitted with high-end optical technology, you'll definitely find something that works for you. I'm currently using the Ultravid HD binoculars and when I'm out on a walk, it feels like I've got HD TV for my eyes. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. My name's Ryan, I'm your host. How are you all doing? It's a splendid day here in North London, in Islington. So much so, I've got the patio doors open, I've got a lovely breeze coming through, listening to the sounds of the city. Random helicopters and sirens and the odd man shouting in the background. It's beautiful, it's honestly so, so beautiful. (laughs) But I hope you're all well. I've not done much nature stuff for the last week embarrassingly so i've been in the garden a lot i've been doing some gardening getting the wildflower seedlings in which has been nice but i've not done much i've been trying to tick off i'm doing kind of like nature bingo this year i've not been broadcasting it just been doing it on my own trying to think think of things i have spotted and what i've got left so uh frog spawn tick toad spawn tick adder tick uh kestrels tick this is all stuff around me Uh, i'm trying to think things i haven't i haven't seen any newts yet I'm not a, you, you guys know I'm not into big into birds, so I mean chiff chaff. Wouldn't know chiff chaff from a dib dab, to be honest with you. <laughs> so I might have seen one, I wouldn't have a clue. Oh, do you remember dib dabs? I haven't had a dib dab in yet. Shut up, Ryan, you're talking about nature. <laughs> um, obviously, I've not seen the walrus. Everyone's going on about the walrus in Pembrokeshire in Wales. The, the odd walrus who's broken many COVID travel restrictions and come to the UK. Why is it in the UK? Why is it in England? What? I don't, has it read the news? There's nothing going on here. We're all trying to get out. Don't come here, mate. Mad. They're calling it the Lost Walrus. Have, have you, I don't know if you've seen that on um, social media. It's been nicknamed. Not sure if it's a male or female yet. They think a female. As I was, talk, I was talking to Lizzie Daly yesterday, and she said she thinks it's a female. But yeah, they're calling it the Lost Walrus. Loads of people have gone to see it. Not one person asked it if it needs directions, so that's rude. Think about your walruses, people. Look after them. <laughs> Think about your walruses. Can you tell that I really don't script these anymore? Should we get that on a t-shirt? Should we do an Into the Wild t-shirt just with a quote, think about your walruses? <laughs> anyway, let's move on to today's show. Today we are talking about environmental activism within the youth and I was joined by activist and campaigner who's done a lot of work addressing government and working with the RSPB, Mr James Miller. I spoke about, um, or I asked James about um, getting into kind of the environmental activism movement within the youth and talking to very high up people within parliament and government bodies feels at the age of 19 having to do it. I wouldn't like to do it at the age of 31 or I would have a few more things to say that James probably is more professional that wouldn't. Um, we also spoke about the climate and ecological emergencies themselves so I asked James if he could snap his fingers what kind of changes would he make and also said what opportunities we have to tackle these two emergencies right now. Then we also um, spoke about two things that James has been working on a lot in the last year, and that was um, doing two online concerts for Reserva and also working with the RSPB's Green Recovery Plan. He addressed Parliament and asked him what that was like. And to remind you all, if you're a fan of Into the Wild or you're just checking out this episode and you happen to enjoy it, you can buy me a coffee to say thanks very much at ko-fi.com forward slash Into the Wild pod. The link is in the write-up to this bio, but I'll stop blabbering and move on to today's show. Hope you enjoy it and I'll speak to you at the end. James, hello. Welcome to Into the Wild. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. First question, and the most important one, mate. How are you? 
I'm all right, thank you. I'm I'm very well, thanks. It's it's been quite difficult working from home with university, having the sister and the dog come into the room every other <laughs> hour. But other than that, I think pretty much the same as everybody else. How about you? I'm okay. It is blistering cold in London today. Like I think it's just been naught degrees all day, which is very rare for London. We don't usually get this for a long period. So I went for a walk earlier, did my hours walk, and I came home and my hands... I couldn't move my hands, James. I was worried. I couldn't move. <laughs> I could barely get in the house. That was interesting, but I'm all good now. I've warmed up. I've had a cup of tea, and I'm looking forward to chatting today about saving the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, same here. Can't wait. So to get the listeners clued up with who you are, shall we start by the first question? James, tell us who you are and what is it you do? Absolutely. My name's James Miller. Uh, I'm a 19-year-old student studying natural sciences, but I'm also in my spare time, I'm an environmental campaigner and filmmaker. And I guess I kind of dip in and out of a load of different projects, and I've been doing that for the last few years. But what I'm focusing on this year is trying to mobilise young people in the UK ahead of some really important UN summits we've got coming up later on. Mm. So yeah, that's that's my focus for 2021. And before we move on to that, because I, I'm blown away by the work you and some, you know, loads of other people are doing as well. But before we move on to that specifically, let's talk about wildlife and nature a bit. Obviously, it's a huge interest for you. So this is always an interesting one for my guests is how and when did your love for wildlife and nature begin? I, I imagine it's the same way that uh, most people's love for nature starts, really, in that mm. it's been something that I've had my whole life. And I mm. guess what differentiates me from most other people in my generation is that it's just it's something I haven't lost since. I remember, uh, actually, just the other day, I was looking through some artwork that I did at primary school, and it was all <laughs> like leopards and rhinos, terribly drawn. But you could tell what they no, were. No, I don't believe that. <laughs> I labelled them, you see, so uh, so you could tell. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think I think there are a couple of reasons that I kept that interest growing up, and mm. I think one of one of the reasons is actually something I have to attribute to one of your previous guests on this podcast, uh, Steve oh. Backshaw. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I think he's actually inspired so many people in my generation uh, to have mm. that interest in nature and to keep that growing up through primary school, at least. I think I saw every Deadly 60 episode at least twice. <laughs> and I'm sure I wasn't alone in that. Either. So uh, that's something. And then also it was the fact that when I was six or seven years old, we moved from the centre of Cambridge as a family mm. uh, out to rural Surrey. And mm. I live right on the border of Heathland now where I get badgers and nightjars oh, and amazing. adders. Yeah, I know it's a naturalist dream. So uh, Where I think... are you? Where in Surrey then, if you don't... Yeah, oh, so absolutely. Yeah, so the nearest proper landmark is probably Guildford. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just a bit south of that, out in the countryside. Nice. Okay, so I used to be, I used to live in, um, like, where Mitcham, so between Leatherhead and Dorking. All right, that's Surrey. I'm right on Box Hill, basically. I was right on that. Oh, beautiful. Which again, for a naturalist, if it, if it is a dream. Lovely. Yeah. No, I haven't been there. As often as I'd liked, but I do remember it's a beautiful place. Yeah, it is absolutely stunning. So we're going to be focusing on, to put it simply, saving the planet today. <laughs> small, topic. small topic. Just a small topic of just uh, stopping the world from imploding, James. No no pressure. Um, but also how to get voices heard as well. I think that's a big focus at the moment. And that's something that I think the youth of today... The, the Oh, God, it makes me sound so old if I say that. <laughs> The, uh, the upper or the next generation I'm actually at that age where I have to say that now 
But it is inspiring to see the next generation doing that in a way that I don't think we've seen done for a long time in the last couple of generations, really standing up to something. So my question is, how did you get into the youth environmental movement? How did that happen to you? Yeah, I think it probably happened to me in quite an unconventional way. I sort of fell into it. When I was 13, I entered one of the RSPB's competitions, Mm. which was a Young Nature Presenter competition. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to win that. And that there was an amazing prize associated with that. I got to go to Scotland and spend a day with Yolo Williams and Miranda Krestopnikov. Amazing. Amazing, yeah, and learn all about how to be a nature presenter, which was great. But it was also really valuable for me, I think, in that after that, I got invited to be a member of the RSPB's Youth Council. Oh, wow, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. And I know um, Indy Green, who's also been on this podcast, he's mm. now a member of that. Um, and that's, that was really amazing because it introduced me to a new community of people all around the world who were really dedicated to tackling these issues that I cared about. Mm. And yeah. that's how I got started. So is it, was it one of those things that once you started to go into that kind of, especially from the activism point of view or the campaigning, was it once you started to go down that wormhole, it's like, well, this is it now. I can't, I can't go out of it. Yeah, totally. And it's something that I think grows for me each year with every new activist I meet, every summit or conference I go to with other young people around the world. I'm always inspired by the people I meet and the projects Mm. they're doing. There's such incredible diversity of young people all doing all sorts of different amazing things. And that fuels me and it keeps me going. And every time, every time I meet someone, I delve in a little deeper. So was it a scary thing to start and get into as well? Because it must be a really like, I don't know, like already busy place to get into. Were you kind of like, was it intimidating to go like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this? It wasn't for me, I'll be honest. And I think that's partly due to how supporting the people who surrounded me were. But I could mm. see how for a lot of people coming into this space, it would be intimidating. I think for several reasons, really. I think it's partly that so many people in my generation who work on this stuff, they're really clued up. They know what they're talking about. They know the science, they know the politics, and they have such incredible dedication that it can be quite daunting for someone who first joins. (laughs) And that's definitely a factor. And also, I think the fact that all these groups and organizations, there's Mm. often quite a broad range of age groups who are working on it all together. And so if you're a younger teenager or even younger than that, you might find yourself working with people many years older than you, even adults in these in these conservation organisations. So I could see it would be quite scary, maybe for a lot of people. (laughs) But if there's anyone listening who wants to get involved, who is finding it a bit intimidating, I would say go for it, because just on the other side of that discomfort is some of the best experiences that you'll have in life, I think, or some Mm -hmm. of the best experiences I've ever had. So How is it preparing to get your voice heard to the right people? How do you go across that? Like, because as you you talk to some important or have and will again talk to some really important people, people that are in decision making, people that are in in power. How I, I guess my first question with that is how does that feel before dealing with that? Uh, it's it's something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, definitely when I started out it was terrifying mm. and you you need a lot of practice I think at public speaking the first few talks I gave and presentations I failed completely really? I was stuttering all the time I used to lose my trail and have to check my notes mm. and yeah it was really really 
it's, it wasn't it wasn't really pleasant. Um, but it was important to to step outside my comfort zone and do that because every talk I give, I become a little more confident. I start to know what mm. I'm doing a lot more. And now, especially now that I've got such, uh, I think, a wide group of connections and supporters in so many different areas of the conservation sector in terms of preparing the content for what I want to say and the points I want to get across. I have a lot of people who are more than willing to help me decide what to say and a lot of people with a lot more expertise and experience than myself, which is really, really helpful. Has there ever been any moment where you're talking to someone completely different to who you are that you know that you need to talk to that's in power that you're feeling like I, I feel like I'm not being heard do you ever have to battle with that I'll be honest normally when I give talks there's not a lot of opportunity for response normally it's I'm giving a speech <laughs> I love that I'm giving a, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm giving a speech and then um and then occasionally someone will give a speech later or bring one mm. or two points up but there's not a lot of ground for real conversation and discussion, which is something that I think I think needs to change. I think you can't mm, just get young, you can't just get young people up to give talks. Uh, it's almost tokenistic in a way. You need to meaningfully engage them in the decision making processes and have them truly at the table for a long period of time to have some meaningful input into the decisions that are being made. So yeah, I that's a problem I would love to have. <laughs> <laughs> That's really yeah. nice of you. I, I think that's a really lovely thing to say as well, because I think so so often we get wrapped up in this, you know, we, we want the discussion, but then we slowly fade away from discussion and we just get, mm. like you said, the talking, which becomes tokenistic so easily and also a lot of the time unintentionally as well. Um, it happens. So I think it's really nice to hear you say that it's, you know, opening up that discussion and having the back and forth is is super important. When you look at actually getting to talk to the people in power, so away from the how does it feel kind of thing, how hard is it to get in front of these people? It can be quite difficult. I think now's a good opportunity to actually share some insights that I had when mm. I did some work experience in the Houses of Parliament a couple of years ago with my local MP. And I think that's something that anyone can do. You can book in work experience with your local MP. Wow. I know it's uh, it was a really amazing opportunity, actually, but it did show me that a lot of the time when you send in an email to these politicians, they actually have a team of people who read those mm. emails and often reply with pre-written responses. It's not yeah. like your voice isn't being heard per se, because these, these people will feed that back to the actual MP and they'll have some idea of the weight and numbers of emails on different topics coming in. But of course, for just one person representing all those constituents, it's not feasible that they'll, they'll read and respond to every email individually. So I think what's really valuable if you can do it is to get an in-person audience with that MP or mm. politician that you want to. And here in the UK, we can book surgeries with our, with our MPs. Um, I think that's happening via Zoom at the moment. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's really important. If you can do that, that gives you a certain period of time of that MP's undivided attention. And that allows you, I think, also to far better convey your passion and also hopefully the degree of scientific backing and understanding to your concerns as well. At the end of the day, it just allows you to far better communicate why you care so much and why the politician should care. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, it's always, it's, I think, making it human. As soon as you're in front of someone, obviously, like you said, at the moment, it's got to be Zoom, everything going on, but just being in front of that person makes it so much more human and makes it so much more real, I think. Exactly. Um, my, 
and like I said earlier, the, the the voice of the youth, with so many topics, but I think in my bubble of world with the environment is so loud and so inspiring. But what do you think it is about this generation that has made that voice so powerful? <laughs> a chance to brag for you. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I think I think it's a combination of several factors, really. And I don't know how many of them are actually due to anything that's particularly unique about us. I think part of it is that there's a perceived innocence and lack of ulterior motive with young people. Mm. I think if people see experienced and seasoned environmental campaigners or people that work for conservation organisations, they think, oh, these people, they're being paid to do this. This is their job. Whereas if they see young people who are committing their time to do this with clearly no financial incentive whatsoever, no ulterior political motive, you know that they're doing it because they care about this, because they're really, really concerned. I think another important aspect is, I think I like to call this the power of surprise, because I think there's this preconception that teenagers are fundamentally lazy and self-absorbed. And uh, and that's just not true at all. But nevertheless, when adults see a group of young people who care about something, who are so aware of the situation in the world around them and so dedicated to tackling these problems, it's a surprise. And that makes it worthy of media attention, even when maybe it shouldn't be. Yeah, that's so true. I think there's something I think actually Steve Batchel mentioned it on the chat on the episode on here is that there is something and not in a negative way, but absolutely terrifying about <laughs> a, a group like when the youth come together but not in a negative way in a group of like like you said oh this is serious like you said there is no other incentive apart from the fact that this group of people care about this issue and care about it and that's i think that's the scariest part about it and the, the other scary thing is and i think this is where your generation have it completely right is you're not willing to take an alternative answer which i think that's where we're at i think if you go back 50 years ago and we were having this maybe there would be some other options that we could explore maybe and change and work together but i think where we're at now i don't think there is i think it's like no it has to change like this and that's what i think the greatest thing about seeing the whole movement is together if you don't mind me asking this question because i hadn't planned on asking this but it's just come to me like obviously what you what you're campaigning for and being an active activist for and, and you're standing up for how do you manage that along with your life as well because there's so many elements of looking after the planet do you ever sit there and think oh god i can't get anything wrong i'm vegan for example mm. so i feel like when i'm talking to my friends if i even nearly have and i'm also plastic free if i nearly use a bit of plastic it's like you've done that wrong you're vegan you say this do you ever feel like the, the topics you're standing up for you're like i've got to be careful i'm probably doing everything fine anyway but do you ever feel like you know i've really got to make sure where my standards are as i'm pushing this and going further ah fantastic yeah no i see that and that's something that I am wary of in my life to try to steer away from being hypocritical as far as possible. Mm. But, I, but I also think that people understand that it's not possible to be perfect, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> especially when you're a student and your life is crowded with so many different pressures on all quarters mm. and you're taking time out of your life to campaign on something that's ultimately it's for, it's for other people. People are conscious of that and I can't remember who it was, but there's there's someone, a very famous expression I'm sure you've heard before, 
that what we need is not one perfect environmental activist, but millions and millions of imperfect ones. And that's how we're going to make the change we need. So yeah, it's something I'm wary of, but it's not something I, that keeps me up at night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to hear, because I was going to say, don't let it if it did. Um, because it is something I, I kind of get from people occasionally, and I'm not massively campaigning for it. I'm just kind of living this life. But I just wondered if it was anything that ever came up kind of in the movement. Regarding climate and the ecological emergencies that we've got now what do you think the main issues are where are the main pinpoints for us it's so difficult because there are so many different issues all of which are really interlinked i would say if i could snap my fingers and change one thing i would try to put the political will where it should be i think there's still a huge disparity between what scientists are calling for and what young people are calling for and what where the level of political ambition currently lies. Mm. And if I could, if I could in a day close that disparity, close that gap and put the climate and ecological emergencies where they belong on the political agenda, that's something that I would do. Small, small ask, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the next one would have been, if I could just fix it all, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if, I guess there's one other thing as well, slightly more specific point, which is although Media coverage of the climate crisis has skyrocketed in the last few yeah. years. And I think we, we partly have the youth environmental movement to thank for that, I think. Oh, 100%, yeah. The same thing hasn't really happened with the ecological crisis, despite that being equally urgent and posing mm. just as much of a threat to us as a species. Uh, and that's really worrying because I speak to people and they have no idea uh, the rate that these, these things are happening. They have no idea that a million species are threatened with extinction or that the extinction rates one to 10,000 times its natural rate. Um, so that's something that really concerns me. And if I could address that disparity, that's something that I would do as well. This is going to be a hard question, I think. I just asked it in my head and I was like, I don't think James is going to be able to, <laughs> because this is a tough one. Coming Go on. on. But I think I always plan on asking it. <laughs> Challenge How me. do you think is the best way to report that without depressing everyone? Very good question. And you're, right, you're right, it's a tough one. Um, it's a tough one. And that's something that I've, I've spent some time thinking about and a lot of people mm. have devoted a lot of time to thinking about. If I had to go about reporting the things that are happening in the world today and I were to report on purely the negative consequences of what we're doing, that would depress mm. people. I've known that there's some very scary news at the moment in terms of the number of tipping points that we're crossing. I think scientists have recently reported that we're on the verge of crossing nine tipping points, nine of our planetary tipping points beyond no return. And we may have already crossed three. And that's incredibly scary. But I also know that that's prompted an exponential rate of creative uh, solutions that people are coming up with. And, and that is incredibly inspiring. And there are some amazing projects that people are undertaking on every corner of the planet. So the way that I would go about reporting it would be to explore the negative consequences we're having, but do that through the solutions. I would start, mm. off, start off by exploring some of these amazing initiatives, which in and of themselves are absolutely incredible from a technological perspective, from an entrepreneurial perspective. They're really inspiring. And then use those to tell the stories of the problems that they're tackling. I think that's the way that I would go about it. So a real solution-based reporting kind of going, this is it, but we also have this 
or kind of not also actually going, this is the solution we have to this current problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really, you know what? You've nailed it. <laughs> problem <laughs> solved. That's it. Problem solved, mate. That's all we've got to do. Now we've just got to find a magazine that's going to do it. Fantastic. <laughs> um, it's no, you know, it's no lie. I think we've said it a thousand times on this podcast in the last year, but COVID has been a massive blip on absolutely everything. It's, it's put halts on some things, it's sped up other things, and it's a real learning curve for us all. But what opportunities do we have with COVID? What opportunities do we have now to tackle the climate and eco emergencies? Yeah, you're totally right. It has messed up a lot. (laughs) Um, And I think actually one of the biggest things that it's done is it's delayed some really important summits that we had last year. Two really crucial UN environmental summits were postponed a whole year to 2021 at a time when every month counts, which was really Mm. quite devastating. But as you say, there are also opportunities in that. And I think one of the biggest ones is probably the opportunity that every country now has to completely redesign their economy from almost scratch, yeah. uh, which is, is not an opportunity we wanted to have, but it's, um, it's, a chan- <laughs> it's a chance. It's the one that, we're faced with. <laughs> it's the one we're faced with, and it's something that we should leap on, and we should take that opportunity to integrate our economic recovery with a recovery for the planet as well. Mm. And it's, it's so, so important that we do that because... We don't have the resources all the time to deal with all these things separately. They have to be done in conjunction. And this year presents an amazing opportunity to do that, not only because we're rebuilding our economies, but also because we have those two aforementioned summits that were postponed from last year. The UN Climate Summit, COP26, and the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is its counterpart, but for the ecological emergency. And... In both of those summits, they're setting new targets that are going to last us for many years to come, new environmental targets for countries to fulfil. And in the case of climate, it's thought that we have maybe just seven years left now or less before we overrun our carbon budget for 1.5 degrees of warming, which is our safe limit. And the timescales are equally bad for the ecological crisis, Mm. where many of our most important and valuable ecosystems are already on the point of collapse. So... Whatever policies we come up with in order to actually get them implemented in time to see the changes we need, those policies have to be made in the next year at these summits. It's absolutely crucial. Um, so that's, that's what I'm dedicating most of my time to this year. And I think the same goes for a lot of other people in the environmental movement. Uh, I guess this might be a personal question. Are you, and I'm hoping for a positive outcome, are you optimistic about that? It's so it's so <laughs> it's so difficult to say, Ryan. Um, I mean, there's mm. our government is host of COP26 this year, co-host with yeah. Italy, and they're saying a lot of good things. There are a lot of promising words coming out of their mouths, but together with that, there's a lot of bad things happening in our own country. They're not quite living up to their word in many respects. Opening new coal mines and going ahead with HS2, mm. which is hugely environmentally destructive. So it's it's difficult to know. <laughs> I, I'm I'm really lost, and I I turn to people who work in nature policy to understand what kind of a stage we're at. And I don't think anyone really knows what to expect. Last time um, we had one of these big bio, biodiversity summits, they actually set some pretty decent targets. Is the impression I get, but the mechanisms for enforcing them and 
the ways in which countries would make plans in order to live up to those targets was insufficient and we didn't meet most of them. Here in the UK, we missed something like 17 out of 20 of our targets. Yeah, I know, I know. So I think, I think again, it's quite hopeful that we'll get some good targets, some good ambition, mm, yeah. um, but it's important that we have the, the legal mechanisms to enforce them and properly funded and detailed plans to achieve those targets. I think that's what needs doing. And that's where it's less certain that we'll succeed. Thinking back to what we spoke about a minute ago about the solution based and kind of going, these are the problems. What kind of solutions do you think are available to ensure targets are actually hit? I think that very much depends on the specific issues in question. I think one of the best tools we have from an ecological perspective is protecting land. Yeah. We, we can restore land and that's incredibly valuable, but actually protecting it in the first place is far more cost effective and also far more effective from a biological perspective to protect the biodiversity that we already have. And that's something that's really being scaled up. There are a lot of big pledges to protect 30% of land and water and to marine and terrestrial ecosystems around the world before 2030. Um, and I think that would be an amazing solution. And that would also help to tackle the climate crisis in conjunction with that, because, of mm. course, by saving all of this land and these beautiful, incredibly biodiverse ecosystems, you're also sequestering a lot of carbon and you're creating a buffer to a lot of the impacts that climate change will have on society, which is incredibly important. And that's mm. an integral part of these summits as well, is talking about how we're going to adapt to these and how we do that fairly. So if I had to pick one solution that I would encourage all countries to adopt, I think it would be um, going heavy on the land protection. And that solves a lot of problems in one go. Nice. I like answers like that, where it's like, do you know what, lads, don't worry about all the, the dots. <laughs> just just do this one title and it kind of covers <laughs> a lot more than what you're trying to achieve. I like answers like that. I wanted to talk to you about two online concerts you ran for something called Reserver last year. Can you t- I tell, I tell you what, tell us a bit about what this is and how that came about. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to telling you about this, actually. It's quite a long story. Go uh, for it. <laughs> so I, I hope your listeners are all um, sitting comfortably. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we shall begin. <laughs> and we shall begin. So I'll start off by telling you about Reserva, mm. because they're an amazing organisation. They're a youth-led charity that's quite new. They were founded last year. And what they do is they're creating the world's first entirely youth-funded nature reserve in Ecuador's wow. Choco rainforest. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> For the listeners, James is smiling so much right now. <laughs> I know, I'm so happy to be involved in it. It's, it's a really, really inspiring project. And how I've helped with that is um, through through a number of different means. But the one that I'm most proud of is that last year I organised an online concert uh, to raise money for them. And I think where that idea came from is that Before then, I was planning on organising an in-series, an in-person series of talks Mm. in my local town. And then COVID happened. And (laughs) (laughs) of course, things, um, it soon became apparent that wouldn't be feasible. And that was a real shame because I was was really looking forward to that. But I decided that I could do something online instead. And Mm. actually, uh, the idea of a concert really appealed because I thought it would be easier to hold people's attention online using using music than it would be mm. through talks. I think yeah. 
in person, a series of talks would have been fine, but online, it's much harder to hold people's attention. And also, I think just finding that intersect with popular culture is a really, really powerful way to engage loads more people who wouldn't mm -hmm. otherwise have a pre-existing interest in conservation. Yeah. And that was, that, that was another really important aspect to this, something I wanted to get out, get out of it, as well as just raising money for this charity. So yeah, I had that initial idea. And then maybe a bit naively, I, decide, <laughs> <laughs> I decided to email a BBC Radio 1 DJ and ask if they wanted to host it. Who did you email? Kel Spellman. Really? Just yes. out of the blue, just emailed just, just him? Just out of the blue, just emailed him. And, um, and he said yes. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. And actually, that gave me the fuel to uh, put together a team of young people at Reserver um, mm. and set about organising this. And we went amazing. on a couple of email marathons. And actually, so many people said yes. We ended up we, <laughs> we 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 ended up partnered up with UN Biodiversity and the Rainforest Trust to launch this as an official event on the International Day for Biological Diversity. Oh my god. We had a lineup of Emmy Award winning artists and YouTube pop stars and National Geographic explorers. And unfortunately Kel had to pull out because he was to be fair on him, he was super busy. He was he was, yeah. <laughs> he was launching a new Netflix programme on top of all of his radio work. But we had BBC presenter Lizzie Daly stand in, who did an amazing, amazing job. Amazing, yeah. And, and it was a real success. I think we raised over $1,000 to protect that rainforest and create that world's first youth-funded nature reserve in, in Ecuador. And we loved running it so much that we put on a second one a month later and had an equally amazing lineup, including someone I think some of your listeners might have heard of, uh, oh. Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, oh, Wow. Yeah, <laughs> she's she's become a bit of a big thing recently. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that did, raised even more money. I think Amazing. more like one thousand two hundred dollars. So between those two, we've protected more than six acres of rainforest, which is just over, I think, three football fields worth. Which doesn't sound like that much, but when you think about the amount of three dimensional habitat mm -hmm. that that creates yeah. in terms of all the massive tropical trees they have and the different zones and the canopy and the forest floor that's actually a lot of habitat and a lot of life that that can protect so yeah what an amazing success story and i think that's i think what you said is right six acres is if that happens again and again and again it grows so quickly and that's such a important part to protect that's a massive congratulations for running that setting that up well, and achieving so it well done i think it's one of one of the best things that i've I've done in my life, less alone in lockdown. One of the things I'm most proud of. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, amazing. It's, it's incredible to hear that those kind of things are happening. And for listeners, there is a link to Reserver in the write-up of this show. So please check them out and go and see what the wonderful work they're doing. Do. Click it. Also, <laughs> I, I can't let you go anywhere without talking about presenting the RSPB's Green Recovery Plan to Parliament, which I watched. Oh, you watched it? Oh, wow, thank yes. you. Yes, it was amazing. You, you absolutely smashed it. What was that like? Cause you, did you do it live? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, James Miller does not, not work live, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, How was that? The, uh, it, was, it was pretty scary. Yeah. Although I'm starting to get used to these things, and I'm gradually doing more and more, it's always a bit scary, especially given this was presented to MPs and ministers mm. and journalists 
I think Jeremy Corbyn and Caroline Lucas were listening. And yeah, so <laughs> there were there were a lot of people there uh, and a lot of politicians who would otherwise be really, really difficult to reach. Mm. So I knew it was a big opportunity to say a lot of things that I've wanted to say for a long time. Did you have to try and retain yourself? <laughs> were you I was so <laughs> tempted just to go live and go, right, listen. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of... I think it's always important not to get angry at these yeah. things. I think you've you've got you've got to keep control. I think See, at the that's end, why you get the gig and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I, there's 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 a place for these things. There is a place. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I think I think at the end, I was, I don't know, I was a bit accusing, but I think you know it, it had been a while since we'd had a climate strike. I think they needed yeah. they needed someone to remind them that they were doing a terrible job. Uh, no, um, no, in all seriousness, I think um, it was it was an amazing opportunity, and um, it was it was really important for me to talk about the responsibility that the government had towards mm. young people, especially, and how integrating a recovery um, and addressing the climate and ecological emergencies, along with and alongside our economic recovery from COVID, how important that is to everyone but especially to the younger generations. So yeah, that was an opportunity I was really, really grateful for. Oh, by the way, I should probably also, I should probably give the context as to what the Green Recovery Plan actually was. Yeah, actually, yeah, good point. Yeah, we better do yeah. that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks for yeah. keeping it on track for me, James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the, for the vast majority of the listeners who didn't watch that. So what this Green Recovery Plan was, it was the RSPB saying to the government yeah. how they could tackle the climate and ecological emergencies alongside mm. an economic recovery from COVID, um, which, as I've already said, that's really, really important for a number of reasons. And they kind of invited me to be on the panel to help launch that, along with some uh, environmental policy experts and some economists who are basically setting out the case for doing this from a whole range of different perspectives. And I was basically there giving the youth perspective and representing the youth environmental movement. So my last question on that, and I think I know the answer. Do you think it was heard? They responded uh, afterwards. <laughs> they focused on the fact that I'd never seen a hedgehog and didn't focus yeah, on... Yeah, I remember that being pulled up <laughs> quite a lot, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think, And I think that actually serves to illustrate an important point, is that that's, mm. that's something quite potent that a lot of adults can connect to is the hedgehog because they saw it a lot growing up and I've never seen one and they find that completely unthinkable. But yeah, I, I don't know. The government, to be fair to them, they are doing a lot of work consulting a lot of people in a lot of different areas. They're consulting a lot of young people, a lot of indigenous communities, people around the world, civil society in, in loads of different areas. So they are listening, but it it just feels to me like there's still a huge disparity between what they're committing to um, and and the, the position on the political agenda that they claim to put these issues and the actual actions we're taking domestically within, within mm. our country towards towards nature and climate. So they, said they seem to be listening, but I just really wish that they would do a lot more to show that in terms of actual concrete action. Yeah, I think... I don't think there's a listener listening now that would not agree with that. <laughs> I think on a lot of topics as well. I think there's, but specifically on this one with the eco and climate emergency, I, I stand with you on that. Yeah, I don't think people aren't listening. I just want, I want to see more execution and more action. I think is, is what we're stood here for. Um, this last question I've asked over 50 times now. And <laughs> wow. I, I always, I get a range of answers. I absolutely love 
hearing the answers to this question. And I think on this episode, I'm really intrigued to see what this answer is. James, if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what would it be? So much pressure, 50 other responses. Wow. <laughs> okay. Oh, I hope this isn't too boring a response, but I would basically say at the moment, just get out and enjoy nature because we've had a very difficult winter. We're in lockdown. Mm -hmm. It's so, so important for your mental health to get outside. We, spring is just around the corner. Oh, we all so need. Close. It's so, so close. The sun is actually pretty warm where I am today, mm. even if the air isn't. So yeah, get outside, recharge your batteries in time for later this year when we are going to have to get our heads down and fight very, very hard because there's a lot at stake. Amazing. An incredible bit of advice. I think it's one that we say a lot on the show, but also it's because it's so important. It's And I think it's so easy to quickly forget it. Like, especially now at the moment, it's like, no, I won't go outside. It's like, no, go. Even if it's raining, just go for 10 minutes. Just get outside. And I think the more you do it, the more you connect with it, the more you care about it, and the more... We have chats like this. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think it's one of the greatest motivations for me in my work is the connection that I have with nature. So get outside, people. Get outside. Yeah, yeah. Get out. Go on, go. Um, but just listen to the end of this podcast first and then go outside. Um, <laughs> James, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today and complete kudos and respect to everything you've achieved and doing and along with the rest of the youth activists with the environment. It's you know, I don't want to sound too crass or cheesy, but it is so kind of motivating to see a generation step up and lead and, you know, not do it on your own. You're saying to everyone, join us. And I think that's a real kind of dignified thing to do. So thank you so much for the work you and everyone around the world is doing. It's, it's real motivating to hear. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the show. Well, thank you so much for giving me a platform. <laughs> thank you. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and tuning in to another episode of Into the Wild. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work James is working on, you can do so on Instagram at JamesMillerNature or on Twitter at JamesNaturalist. If you enjoyed today's show or you're a fan of Into the Wild podcast, you can buy me a coffee at www.kofi.com forward slash Into the Wild pod to say thanks. The link to that website is in the write-up of this show. You can also get in touch with me at IntoTheWildPod at gmail.com or on social media at IntoTheWildPod on Twitter and IntoTheWildPodcast on Instagram. If you just want to say hello, share some thoughts on an episode, let me know about a nature highlight or let me know what you want to hear about next. Anything at all. But until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.